0: The issue, whether it's restitution, or deaccession, or even copyright ownership, if it's too emotive, then you tend to get people pitted into opposing forces, right? I feel strongly about this, you feel strongly about that, we fight it out. But if you understand the the legal chemistry behind it all, I think that it allows you to work on projects together to try to reach some form of resolution. I hope that that's what we've been able to do in just informing the public, informing people who come onto our courses and who read our publications, to to understand the underlying complexity of all of these issues in order to work towards resolutions as, as they might be necessary.
1: Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Alexander Herman, Director of the Institute of Art and Law. In the following conversation, I talk with Alex as well as Assistant Director Emily Gould about the work of the Institute and how it began, its course and publication offerings, as well as its seminars and study forums, and its collaboration with Queen Mary University of London to create an Art, Business, and Law LLM. And we discuss various art law issues from copyright to repatriation of Benin bronzes to NFTs. Emily Gould and Alex Herman, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Would you give an overview of the Institute of Art and Law, how it began and uh, what its mission has been?
0: Sure. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having us on on this great podcast. It's it's really a pleasure and an honor. Um, The Institute of Art and Law was founded in 1995. So it's been around for over a quarter of a century. And it has always been um, engaged in trying to bring together um, all areas that are affected by art and law. So whether it's copyright or import-export or contracts or tort uh, or the control of the built environment, um, the Institute of Art and Law has always tried to better understand those areas and to instruct in those in those areas so that people who are working in this area, either as practitioners or potentially as as academics, can have a better understanding of what's going on, what the trends are, what the connecting features might be, and I think overall, why art and heritage generally um, have such a unique place in 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 the in the society in which we live and specifically in relation to to the legal sector, and why it's different if you're dealing in a work of art than if you're dealing in in any other kind of object, whether it's uh, parachutes or or ball bearings or panama hats if you're dealing with art it, it will be treated differently both legally uh, and ethically so those are those are the thematic areas that the IAL the institute has always tried to try to engage with it was founded by a couple actually uh, Norman Palmer the great uh, late great professor and and his wife Ruth Redmond Cooper um, and Norman was a, a professor at at University College London. Ruth was a, a senior lecturer. and they had a, a mutual interest in in this area for various various reasons. And really, if you think back to that era, there was nothing like this, whether in the UK or in Europe or or in the US. And so the the purpose of the IEL was really to fill that that gap because the universities weren't offering any kind of institute um, uh, that was comparable and and the firms, the law firms and practitioners who were starting to work in this area had not really developed um, a full art law practice. It was quite sporadic and, and, um, and somewhat undeveloped. So the institute being founded in 1995 kind of provided a space for, for all of those people interested in this area, whether they came from uh, the practice, some solicitors and barristers in, in the UK, or if they came from the museums, the IAL was a place for them all to gather, to exchange ideas, to listen to talks, to read new publications, and basically to share ideas about, about art law in this in this developing area. And I think largely that's still what we do today. So we've tried to remain a consistent throughout, throughout the years and to provide that, that space. Now, 2001, Twenty-one. There are there are more places where that discussion can be had. As you know, there are podcasts like this one. There are there are other centers, other organizations, certain universities are moving into this area or have moved into this area with with um, uh, programs that relate to art law um, and cultural heritage law. There are uh, publications that deal with them. I mean, you read about it in the press very frequently. So the the area has definitely developed and grown um, but we've still tried to maintain our our humble place in it all and to try to you know bring together the different sides that I mentioned so that we can all have a better understanding of what what the developments are and where we are today and that's IL in a nutshell.
2: Yeah, and I'd just say um, a big thank you for um for for from me to Stephanie for inviting us to to take part in your wonderful podcast, which we frequently listen to with with great interest and enjoyment. Um and I, I would just just add to to that um the 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 absolute agreement that you know this area uh, of art law has really burgeoned over the last sort of 20 or so years from a discipline which wasn't really sort of recognised as such um, you know in the early 1990s and so the IAL was really sort of in there from the start um, to something which is you know a, a much greater area both sort of within the uh, legal world and um and the art world i mean if you'd looked at a directory of of lawyers in sort of the early 1990s you would have found a handful maybe of art lawyers now there are a fair few lawyers practicing in this area and likewise if you'd um if you'd interviewed museum staff and asked them about the importance of the law in their day-to-day work They probably would, in the main, have had relatively low levels of understanding, whereas I think um people working in the arts sector are much more aware of the importance of legal issues and making sure they get their contractual arrangements in place um, than they were 20 or so years ago that's not to say that there aren't still you know these cases which uh we we sometimes find quite surprising although perhaps we shouldn't where um you know that there, there is just a general uh, sort of reluctance to engage with the law and to really appreciate how important it might be in certain situations.
1: The Institute gives periodically and consistent uh, throughout the year courses and seminars with perspectives uh, from the different professionals that you and Alex have both mentioned. And so I would love if you could give an overview of those kinds of offerings.
0: Yeah, so so we've been running um, since the early 2000s certain diploma courses and uh, we have online courses, and then we have what we used to call a traditional classroom courses. Although now with the pandemic, everything's kind of, in a way, merged together. But we run we run online distance learning courses, which which involve readings that are sent online, and and you have people from all over the world that that would join up to those. Um, until recently, until the pandemic, the the more traditional courses that we ran. Um, were were run in London and sometimes in Australia we'd we'd run them as well but they were they were classroom courses where everyone sat around a table and talked about these issues Steph you you know them well because you're a, a famous famous alumnus of of one of those courses the diploma in art profession law and ethics um, now that you run your own podcast you're probably one of the most famous so that's that's great to to connect over that but the um, the, the, that particular diploma course uh, is called the, the full name is a diploma in art, profession, law, and ethics. So it really seeks to investigate the intersection between law and ethics from the perspective of the of the professional of the practitioner. So that could be a that could be a lawyer, or it could be uh, someone in the art market, or potentially someone working at a museum. And we look at all sorts of areas in relation to, to the arts. So from copyright and moral rights to art crime, to fakes and forgeries, to the built environment, to the law of treasure, export tax, etc. And it runs over seven months, but it's only one day a month, one Saturday a month over seven months. And so we're starting uh, that course, actually we're running it for the first time online. So it will run through zoom. And it starts on the 5th of June. So we're excited about that because we, we've seen the people who've signed up so far. And it's quite an international group, which is, which is great because usually that was harder um, when things were, were in a classroom. People would have to travel. And because it's only one day a month, it was sometimes a big ask to come all the way to the UK for that. So it's great to see an international uh, list of, of participants for that, for that diploma course. We, run, we also run a diploma course specifically for museum professionals, and that runs in October. So our next one runs in early October, the Diploma in Law and Collections Management. So that's really more about the nitty gritty of how museum professionals run their collections and issues that they face in terms of acquisition of art or disposing of art, deaccessioning art from collections, sometimes some governance issues, loan agreements, very important, obviously, for museums. So that's the diploma in law and collections management. We also run a, an IP-specific um, short diploma course. It's only three days in late June. So in late June, uh, from the 23rd to the 25th of next month, we're running this diploma in intellectual property and collections. So that looks at, obviously, copyright, uh, moral rights of artists. Some of the other IP rights, like Trademark, uh, get touched upon as well. And the artist resale right as it exists in, in Europe and the UK. So that's, that's another. So those are the three uh, main, again, what I would traditionally call classroom courses, but now where things are online, they're, they're being run online as well. Um, and then, and then we have our distance learning courses, which, which are, have always been online courses, but they're not interactive in the same way. It's more readings that get sent to students and they re- do the readings and they, they answer certain assessment questions and then have certain assignments to, to complete. So, so that, those are our, our main offerings. And um, we also run events and seminars, more one-off events. You know, We have one coming up next week on, on art being used as security for financial loans. So the, uh, the collateralization of art, which is an important area, um, quite developed obviously in the U.S., not so much in the UK. So we're, we're trying to actually learn from the US experience to see where things might go um, in the next few years in the United Kingdom.
1: One of the courses that I saw, or perhaps it's more like a seminar, is uh, the restitution dialogues. And I'd seen where that was going to be a three-part series and the first part was done. I was wondering if that was in the works for being rescheduled for the future.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very good question. So it it's a three part uh, conference series, as you said. The first one was in was run in in Israel in December of two thousand nineteen. the The second um, in uh, version was or uh, second conference, I guess we'd say, was going to be run in Toronto, Canada, um, last year. So that's been postponed. We don't yet have firm dates for that we're hoping in the in the fall of 2021 but who knows with with the pandemic and everything happening if that's if that's still going to be the case but we you know watch watch this space and watch our website cuz we'll we'll update everyone on that and then the final the third and final conference was going to take place in London and and we would run that directly from the IAL so that would be later so everything unfortunately because of the pandemic that that conference series, because it was very much about being a traditional conference where it was in person, um, that's gotten postponed rather than digitized in the, in the pandemic era. Um, but we hope, to, we hope to have more on that. It, was, it, it started very strongly, it's very interesting to be in Israel and to be talking about issues relating to the restitution of Nazi looted art, for example, or, um, or other forms of restitution, which they actually deal with as well, we don't maybe think about as often. In, in that part of the world, it's obviously very rich from an archaeological standpoint. Um, so they're, they're obviously dealing with those issues as well. They have museums that collect items. They have collectors that have maybe collected items uh, and remove them from a place without an export license. It's obviously very tense there right now. Um, but they, these issues do arise there in more, in a more general sense, not simply from the perspective of um, families trying to claim, material that was lost or stolen during the Holocaust. So that was the first uh, conference the second one in Toronto Canada was going to be more about indigenous uh, art and cultural heritage and those recovery claims but also again touching on the more general themes and then the last one in in London was was going to be more about um, mu- museum collections and return of colonial era material, which is obviously an area that's that's become of, of great interest and importance in the last little while.
1: All of the topics that you uh, or the Institute and each of you contribute to uh, the writings for the Institute, there's an ongoing blog that has a wide array of the issues that you've been talking about today. And I have one for each of you. So for Alex, your most recent blog on copyright in America I just want to start by saying I loved the cover art, and I would love to perhaps have you uh, just kind of describe your (laughs) attempt at fair use, and then maybe um, an overview of that kind of angle that the UK, from the UK perspective, and you're also a Canadian attorney, how you see issues overlapping with the copyright themes that are emerging in America, or the confusing themes. There is no real theme, perhaps.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're all very interested in, in what's going on in the US and the Second Circuit decisions and, and other copyright decisions. Uh, it, we always find fair use in the US just a fascinating topic. It's like staring into a diamond. There are so many different angles, you don't know where to begin. And it's, it's obviously, it's quite different in the UK, it's different in Canada. Um, fair use is quite, I want to say uniquely American. It, there are forms of fair use in a few other countries, but it's its really, it's an American creation. And and it's fascinating. And I it, it does allow for really new and interesting forms of artistic creation. And I think after the Richard Prince and Carew case, uh, I think people were embracing the fact that fair use could be used by appropriation artists like Richard Prince. And in that case, he'd Famously, or infamously, depending on your point of view, used photographs uh, taken by a French photographer of Rastafarians in rural Jamaica without permission, without seeking permission, and used them in his works of art in a series called Canal Zone. And he was sued by the photographer, but he largely won on fair um, use—that the that the use he'd made for his purpose was was considered fair and transformative of the original works, which is what what one of the key elements of determining fair use. And he won on 25 of his 30 works that he had, that he made. And I think that, that emboldened certain people um, in terms of artistic creation, because it, it was felt that there's a lot that can be done in the US in terms of artistic uh, creation, in terms of new kinds of art, whether it's video, doesn't it just have to be 2D art, could be video art, uh, sound recordings as well, DJs, like that decision because they could do a lot more with with matchups and, and song samples that they were using and and even I mean, we saw it in some of the courses that we were teaching in relation to museum practitioners. You wouldn't think about this normally, but actually some people who work in um, publishing in different museums in the us were taking a very bold approach to fair use in in publishing, republishing digitizing items from collections and, and claiming fair use. And, and there were a number of decisions, it's not just the Prince and Carreyu case that, that was guiding on that, but there have been, as you know, a number of cases that were generally favorable to the, to the user, to the person relying on fair use. And so we saw that in the last number of years. And this new development has thrown something of a spanner in the works. And I think people are going to have to take a step back and reassess and ask themselves, okay, well, we might we might have been okay under the under the previous regime, but now it looks like at least, but from the Second Circuit's view, that fair use is getting a more restrictive um, interpretation by certain courts. So we we need to be a bit more careful and maybe take less of a risk when we're using works, whether we're an artist or representing an artist, or potentially we work at a museum or we represent a museum, and it's a question of whether a museum can, can make a particular use. Now, that said, there's then there was that case involving a museum and a digital use of a photograph, which was the Murano case involving the Metropolitan Museum. And the result from the same court, Second Circuit, was the, I don't want to say the opposite result, but it was a very different interpretation of fair use, very very broad, you could say more in the spirit of Prince and Carrioux. Um, and allowed a museum without asking permission of the photographer to to put up a digital image of a photograph on their website um, to illustrate a specific topic in that case it was the the guitar the Frankenstein guitar of Eddie the late Eddie van Halen. Um, so that was allowed so the photographer was unsuccessful in that case but then in this in the other decision by the second circuit involving um, the the uh, use of a photograph by Andy Warhol, photograph of Prince, the artist, not to be confused with Richard Prince. Too many Princes, uh, at least there are two, two, two one too many prints, maybe for this uh, for this talk. But uh, the the Warhol Foundation lost before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals on their fair use argument. So the photographer won. So you have within about a week or so, you had two very different decisions from the same court different panels but of the same second circuit court of appeals which has again left left everything in 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 some level at some level of indeterminacy and i think it's from what i've heard from attorneys in the us and practitioners it's it's very difficult to assess where where we go from here and what you can advise if you're advising a an artist client in terms of what they can do or or an institutional client um, the Met came out on top in their case, um, but the Andy Warhol Foundation did not. So it's very difficult to get any kind of real consistency um, on fair use. And then the final point, I know because you asked about it right at the beginning and I have to get to it. I was very proud of that. And so far, Steph, you're the only person who's who's mentioned it. So clearly it didn't make
1: it really jumped out at me.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you and me both. But I think most people have moved on from the 1979 Supertramp album "Breakfast in America," <laughs> much to my chagrin. Well, you're bringing it back. They're trying to bring it back, but I thought I just that that image I think is just so, in a way, icon or it was iconic, I guess, of the the waitress serving up. She's actually serving up a glass of orange juice on the album cover. And then there's a, a mock skyline of New York in the background, which is actually made up of diner plates and accessories. And she's in one of those 1950s diner outfits. And it's, and it's seen through an airplane window. And Supertramp, they were this British group, this, this music group. And they, I think they were quite fascinated with America and diners and everything that America stood for. And so they, it was like a commentary from the outside on what was happening in America, what America was all about. And so I just thought that image was so perfect for this, because I'm an outsider, not qualified American attorney in any way. I try to pretend that I know what's going on in terms of copyright, but it's very difficult. And, and that image was, was to show what an outsider's view, like what we think is going on in America, but actually on the ground, it's really quite different. And then instead of the orange juice in her hand, I put the copyright symbol, and I was hoping, and I don't know, haven't haven't had any lawyer's letter yet, but I was hoping that that would qualify as as a fair use if it were U.S. law. But I also just to cover my my back, I also said quotation under U.K. law, possibly parody under other forms of law that have it, maybe a, a. user-generated content content under Canadian law. Like different countries have different defenses, different exceptions. And I was hoping that that would... That would p- protect me or at the very least stimulate conversation, which so far until this very moment, it has not. So I'm glad that, <laughs> that you asked that, Stephanie.
1: Under the Metropolitan decision that you just referenced, because you're doing it for an institution, for educational purposes, that even if they were to argue that the copyright symbol wasn't enough transformation, that you might still be good.
0: <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. That's another arguing I can use in my... <laughs> in my brief <laughs> when, it, when it's necessary. Luckily, luckily, I think we know enough, enough attorneys, hopefully, to, <laughs> to, to get some pro bono work if we do get to. <laughs> I'm hoping not, and I'm hoping if, if yes. there's any letter, I'll just I'll have to remove it probably. But hopefully, hopefully the, the owners of the...
1: Oh, I think it'll just be letters of compliment.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe.
1: <laughs> I think all in all, Alex, you're probably pretty safe. Yes.
0: Thank you. Wow, I feel better.
1: (laughs) So for Emily, your recent uh, Benin Bronze's blog post kind of led with Germany's impressive announcement that 25 of their museums would potentially give back Benin Bronze's to Nigeria. So would you kind of give your thoughts on, on where that stands with a global perspective on giving back objects from Nigeria that were taken
2: wrongly? Sure, sure, Stephanie, thanks. Um, And your regular listeners will will be familiar with with the story, I'm sure, because you've covered it in one of your your Glance at Culture sessions. Um, But of course, the Benin bronzes, those treasures um, taken from the city of Benin in 1897 um, in the rather infamous punitive raid by British troops. Um, which were then brought back to the UK and sold off and ended up in um, institutions pretty much all over the world, um, the majority in the UK and continental Europe, but some um, in the US and other countries. Um, and there has been um, a, 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 a long-standing initiative to try to get those items um, restituted, returned to uh, Nigeria. And there has been, as you mentioned Stephanie, a flurry of activity over the last few months, really. Um, so there was this announcement by the German government um, that um, proceedings and discussions are on way to try and um, facilitate the return um, from uh, over 25 German museums. And in fact, I just read today um, in the art press that, the German government is providing um, some funding, a funding pot to enable those museums to carry out the provenance research they need to into their own holdings of, of bronzes because they um, the government's committed to try to um, make all of the details, all of those provenance investigations, um, transparent and online by the fifteenth of June, which is a, is a fairly tall order, probably for some of those small institutions. So they're providing this funding to enable them to to look into their holdings. Um, so that was that was quite a big deal, and it's um, it's uh, encouraged. Uh, activity from from other countries, there was um, a restitution from a university museum in the UK from the Aberdeen University Museum of a particular item. Um, There have been some discussions from a California museum um, but I think we need to see all of this as, uh, you know, not, not something that which has just come out of the blue, um, but as another step on, on a continuum, which museums have been on over the past several years, whereby they are um, giving much greater attention to um, the origins of certain items within their collections, particularly relating to colonialism um, and which emanated from the, from the colonial era. Um, And they're really sort of feeling this pressing need to be more transparent about the histories, the troubling histories, you know, of many of those items. Um, And so, you know, there have been a number of European countries that have been really uh, pushing forward on these initiatives. Germany, as we've mentioned, the Netherlands um, has a, a relatively new policy about these things. Um, And in France, many of your listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with the now quite famous pronouncement of President Macron back in November 2017 um, in Wagadougou in Burkina Faso when he um, talked about wanting to create conditions for the um, temporary or permanent return of um, African objects um, that are now in France to Africa within a five year period. Um now, of course, it's easier to make these statements than to actually make the things happen. Um, and these um, these processes often take quite an amount of time. Um, so obviously, you know, we're, we're quite a way on now from 2017. Um, and in France in particular, and in many countries, um, the the actual process of returning these objects will um necessitate legislation changes in the law um, so in france this process is now underway um and alex mentioned the the bill that went through the the french um, uh, assembly so there is now a law which has been passed to return 26 specific objects um, to what's now the republic of benin and senegal within the next 12 months So um, it's looking like, you know, things are now moving forwards, but these things are going to take time. Um, There was another example, actually, that I mentioned in the blog from the UK, whereby um, a bronze cockerel and okuko, I think is the the proper word, um, that was in a Cambridge college, Jesus College, Cambridge, Um, and it was actually a student initiative which started the ball rolling to get this item returned to Nigeria and that was a few years back now that the decision was taken but um, I'm not sure whether that restitution has actually taken place Um, so the conversations to the actual restitution as I say often takes quite an amount of time but it looks like you know that the the ball is rolling and things are happening in a number of different countries and um it's you know the momentum is very much moving forwards on these projects now and you mentioned the
1: reference i had made in the podcast episode earlier about this topic and i was curious for either of you what your thoughts are on the british museum's holdings and they they've been quoted as saying that they don't have an interest in removing the objects that they think that they should be for a wider audience. And then the book that uh, the Brutish Museums that came out recently by Dan Hicks, uh, that kind of speaks to this issue. And I was just curious, do you see that potentially changing or any kind of movement in that perspective? Because the British Museum, my understanding is, has perhaps the largest holding of the
2: bronzes? yes um, yeah the British Museum does have a have a large holding indeed and um, the I mean there have been the British Museum has been involved in discussions about the future of the bronzes for some years there's a group called the Benin dialogue group um, which involves institutions um, a number of institutions throughout Europe who do have have holdings of the bronzes and they have been in discussion um, with the Nigerian authorities about, um, you know, the future of the bronzes, and um, they their discussions have been more along the lines of, of loans of these objects, I believe. Um, but I mean, who's to say what, what, what might happen in, in the future? And I mean, I'm sure your readers will probably be be well aware of some of the. Um, sort of legal restrictions Alex mentioned on some of of the the national institutions um, in the UK um, do have uh, legal restrictions which make it difficult for them to um, to deaccession or to dispose of to return items and so there are certain legal hurdles which have to be surmounted but a lot of these conversations are um, more about sort of the ethical principles behind um, what should happen to these objects. And so, you know, the British Museum has been involved in these discussions and um, who knows whether, you know, current events might spark new new ideas. Um, I, I, I don't have any personal knowledge of, of, you know, discussions which have taken place in the museum since the latest developments, but, um, you know, we, we will see. I don't know if Alex, you've got any, any further thoughts
0: no, I think I think I would I would second that we we, we don't know um, we're actually in in the process we've we've been working on a on a guidance for UK museums on restitution and repatriation with the Arts Council England, and so it's um, it there's not there's not a lot we can we can say I don't think um, formally, but like I I second what what Emily has, has said. Um, we'll let you know as soon as that. That gets um, formally released, and and you know that might be something we can talk about then. But um, yeah, for now, when it when it comes to certain UK institutions, we're a little bit uh, uh, mum, I guess. We wouldn't mum's the word. So so unfortunately, we won't be able to say too much more more than that. But the the issues are obviously interesting, and as Emily said, there's a. There's an important ethical component as well, and it's not just a legal issue. And I think that's, that's something that restitution brings up in any context, whether it's in, in the colonial context or in terms of war loot or, or in terms of Nazi looted art as well, as, as you've commented on many times before, Stephanie.
1: That was a point from uh, Emily's chapter from Museums in the Holocaust that stood out to me. Uh, You make reference to historical justice and uh, Edmund Duvall, who uh, I had done a a feature on his book, The Hair with Amber Eyes, which is, you know, such a compelling story of his family dealing with Nazi looted art and his perspective on uh, restitution Coming in the form of allowing objects to tell their own story, it's just another example, uh, perhaps, of how difficult it is to get uh, legal justice, and that restitution is a a complex topic. Certainly, yeah, Yeah,
2: absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, one of the conclusions of the that conference that you mentioned um, in Berlin a couple of years ago uh, about Nazi looted art was that um, you know there has been a lot of progress in this area over the last 20 years but these are extremely complex issues um and you know there's not always been a sort of consistent approach to um claims by um, the victims um, of, of nazi looting and that you know there is still a, a way to go you know there are still um there's still many works out there that that haven't been returned um, and, you know, there are still questions to be asked. It's interesting because um, I think when this topic was first really um, addressed uh, in a in a very sort of um, determined way in the late 1990s, there was a, a bit of an expectation that, well, you know, we'll look at these questions and these claims will be fleshed out. And this will be all done and dusted within maybe a decade or so. Um, And indeed, I mean, there was a piece of legislation in the UK which enables some of those national institutions which have legal restrictions on returning works to return those works in response to um, claims for Nazi looted art in certain situations. And that legislation had what's called a sunset clause. So it was enacted in 2009 and it was intended that it would fall away in 2019, because I say there there was an expectation that those claims would would, would all have been dealt with. Um, But come 2019, of course, that it was very much an evidence that that wasn't the case. Um, And so um, further legislation and amending law had to be passed to remove that sunset clause such that that legislation will continue indefinitely.
1: The information that you guys put into Museums and in the Holocaust, uh, so much has happened with all the different issues that were set forth in that book. And you just touched on one where there's 20-year anniversary for the Washington Principles, a, a monumental conference for this topic. Uh, I was curious what prompted the, the second edition of the book. Was it just that We'd already had that 20 year anniversary with the Washington principles or or was there another triggering event for for the uh, the second edition?
2: So that's a very good question, Steph. Um, And I think you've really hit the nail on the head. Um, So there was that 20 year anniversary um, and this um, important conference in Berlin, um, which raised a number of um, important issues and really focused minds on what had happened over the last 20 years um, and, you know, progress which had been made, but also questions which, which remained and which um, people really needed to think about going forward. And so um, that's really where we started our, our thinking for a second edition. And we wanted to um, capture uh, some of what has already taken place because back in 2000, of course, course, this whole area was very much in its infancy. It was just two years after the um, Washington conference, which you mentioned, that really important conference, um, which really sort of started the ball rolling um, from from a claims point of view in this area. Um, So we wanted to look at what had happened. um, And so since then, there has been the establishment of the five panels um, within five European countries specifically to look at these Claims. So we have a panel in the UK. Um, there is one in Austria, France, Germany, and the Netherlands. They all operate um, in slightly different ways. And indeed, that, that that was one of the frustrations that came out in this um, this meeting in in Berlin. That that um, questions that claimants are bringing are. Don't always elicit the same answers in different countries. Um, So so that was a very interesting point. So we wanted to look at, you know, the approaches of those different countries and look at some of the cases that have been heard um, and the ways in which the the different panels deal with those claims the panel in the, in the UK, the Spoliation Advisory Panel, I think has been um, held up by some as, as something of a gold standard um, in the sense that it's, its operations are very, very transparent. From the beginning, it has published um, its recommendations online so everybody can look at them. Um, you know, prespre- Prospective claimants could, can look at the kinds of issues that, um, that are discussed. Um, and the very, I think, the very sort of sensitive um, uh, assessments of those cases, because of course these panels um, almost always are looking at issues much wider than the the legal parameters of these claims. They are looking at ethical issues and the and the moral strength of these claims. Because a very, a very important point to appreciate is that um, oftentimes there are no ext- extending. Um, a, 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 continuing legal claims because um not to go into the detail the boring detail of the law but um I, i'm sure many of many of the listeners will be aware that um legal claims generally have a certain lifespan so this thing called limitation of actions or prescription um there will come a point where a legal claim might simply be extinguished by um the affliction of time uh, and that is the case um of course in many of these instances because the the circumstances that we're talking about um and, and the re- the removal the the unlawful misappropriation of these works happened back in the 1930s and 40s so um suffice to say uh, when looking at these claims um that the, the panels dealing with these claims look at the the wider issues the ethical issues Um, So we wanted to look at those panels and we wanted to to um, extend our investigation um, to to other countries, really to show that um, this is really a a global issue Um, and and claims um, have emanated, you know, from from countries far and wide. Um, we wanted to look at the situation in Israel, as of course, um, Israel's citizens have, have suffered from the Holocaust more than those of almost any other nation. Um, and some of its museums have have indirectly sort of profited from Nazi loot. So uh, we thought that was quite a quite a sort of unique case there. Um and we wanted to look at the situation in Australia, again, partly to, to demonstrate sort of how far and wide these issues. Are um and some Australian museums have taken a sort of very proactive approach to provenance research um, in these areas. Um, and we also wanted to um to think about some of the sort of wider issues which affect all um all states really. Um so to review sort of briefly the, the, the history of Nazi looting um and some of the um, more sort of cross-cutting themes. Um, like provenance research, for instance, is a really interesting chapter by um a provenance curator from the V&A Museum, Victorian Albert Museum in London. Um, and his job is all about you know this whole area looking into um the provenance of um certain Nazi-looted objects. And um, so he, he sort of traces the history from a situation where um museums were perhaps not. Um, delving too deeply into the history of the ownership um, of items that they acquired to um, the position today, when they really generally have very r- robust due diligence practices, particularly um, looking at objects which might have a um, a murky history in the sort of from the Holocaust era, 1933 to 1945. Um, so that was quite fascinating. Then we have a number of other chapters. Um, about specific sort of case studies um, and the one which she very kindly contributed stuff on the, on the Gerlich Collection, this collection of um, over 1,500 objects collected by a Nazi art dealer, um, then inherited by his son and discovered um, almost by coincidence in a way after a, a tax investigation in Germany. Um, really fascinating story there that really, again, sort of focused the uh, the German authorities on these issues back in the sort of middle of the 20, 2010s. Um, and then there's um another case study of the Max Stern Foundation, which again I know you've you've featured on, on the podcast. Um, and that foundation is seeking to recover artwork taken from Max Stern, who was a um, German Jewish art dealer during the 1930s. So I think these case studies sort of really bring to light some of the the issues which um, which are still you know uh, in the course of resolution um, all these all these years later
1: going to the art antiquity and law journal that the institute uh, provides it gives case studies like this um, as the year goes on with whatever timely topics there are or even book reviews one uh, article in it in the last version, I I haven't read yet, but I'm very my interest is peaked is about the violation uh, in the EU for failure to include uh, work in a catalog resume. So it's like the institute has wide range of topics. You you pretty much capture every area of uh, from your publications and the blogs and
2: the courses. It it, it has a wide net. You know that the whole area of art law has very much sort of um become something that people are interested in more widely you know the mainstream press almost every week there's a story which touches on the kinds of issues that alex and i teach about day in day out and uh, yeah you, you're right that the journal covers really wide areas just just a few minutes ago just to remind myself actually i was just looking at the last um the last issue of the journal And you're right, there's that really quite fascinating article about the sort of intersection of competition law, potentially, and um, sort of authenticity and and, and how that plays out. Um, But also in this issue, we've got articles about um, auction laws in New Zealand and what um, possible protections a buyer of a misattributed work might have under the laws of New Zealand. So, laws uh, relating to sale of goods and consumer protection might potentially um, apply to protect a buyer of um, a work which he thought was a Picasso and then turns out not to be. So, that was New Zealand law. And then we move all the way from New Zealand to Nigeria. And there's a really fascinating article um, by one of our our friends in Nigeria about um, the effect that the pandemic has had on people's right to culture, to experience and enjoy their their own culture, um, which, of course, has been impacted by the lockdown restrictions. Um, So the author looks at... um, How the protection of culture really had to find sort of new platforms during the pandemic period. Um, And she emphasizes the importance of um, sort of technology and digitization in memorializing and safeguarding intangible heritage, in particular, because in many ways that's often kept alive by social interaction and by you know oral traditions and a lot of that kind of activity just hasn't been able to happen during the pandemic so um she emphasizes you know how important it is that some of these traditions are are being preserved through technology and through digitization and she ends up by sort of um imploring the the governments of Nigeria and um, and and you know other countries to um extend you know practical things like power supplies and wi-fi such that people can continue you know even in rural communities to to enjoy their culture so that's new zealand nigeria and then we move to um japan and china with another fascinating story about um a restitution case um whereby an important um, limestone carving of a Buddha head was put up for sale in um, Japan by a Japanese auction house. This is really quite recent, um, sort of back ends of 2020. And it was spotted by the Chinese cultural authorities who realised, having done a bit of research, that it was very probably um, taken illicitly from China in the 1920s. And then um, there were ensuing negotiations and um, the object was voluntarily then restituted um, back from the Japanese auction house and seller to, to China. So really interesting story. And as I say, that's just a flavour for the kinds of issues issues and the sort of scope that we cover in in the journal it's fascinating for us I mean we, we are um we get you know really sort of high quality submissions from academics from art market professionals from those working in the museum field from all over the world and it's it's always a thrill really to to open the journal each, each issue and and, and um, discover you know ourselves some really fascinating stories that we hadn't previously heard about
1: And would you say that the LLM program that uh, the Institute has partnered with Queen Mary to provide, that that kind of scope was encapsulated in the program also? And would you just describe that program a little bit?
0: Sure, sure. So yeah, so it's an LLM, it's a law master's that, that we run with Queen Mary University of London. So that's one of the the main London universities. Um, and it's specifically run out of the Centre for Commercial Law Studies. And it's very central, right right near Holborn Station in central London. And it was the brainchild of the late Norman Palmer, um, who was approached in about 2014 by representatives from this Centre for Commercial Law Studies. And they were interested in art law. they they had some expertise amongst specific academics, but they didn't have a program, they didn't have a center, they didn't have really anything sufficient to teach the topic. And so they brought Norman in and, and I got roped in as a result, um, because I was working for him at the time. And we we put it together with them. It's very much a partnership between, you know, a leading academic institution, meaning this this Center for Commercial Law Studies at Queen Mary. And then the Institute of Art and Law, and we're we're independent. We don't have other than this partnership. We don't have an affiliation with a particular university. We're not government um, sp- sponsored. We're we're completely independent and reliant on our membership and our you know fees for our courses, et cetera. So it was a quite a unique program. Came together. The first year was 2017-18, that academic year. So we're actually we just finished, basically finished the teaching. And at least the exam part of of the fourth year of this program. and it's been it's been a great experience because it's quite intensive because it's a one year masters, and we cover all the areas that we've talked about on this podcast and then some, and we do it in great depth when we have exercises and uh, written assignments and classroom um, uh, moots and things like that. And we get perspectives from all over because the student body is is quite diverse and quite international. And one of the interesting things is I think everyone in the academic world was a bit worried by the pandemic sort of last summer because nobody knew what was going to happen with the next academic year. But actually, we ended up having the same number of students that we'd had in previous years. We had people from all over the world, actually some some from East Asia, some from the United States, who are able to, to take this program, which otherwise they wouldn't have been able to because of the, the costs associated in the travel, etc. So we actually got probably a, a more diverse group, in the, at least in terms of geographic origin. And that's been really useful. So the teaching has been done almost entirely online. At the beginning, there was a little bit that was done for small groups on campus. But you know, once the once the real lockdowns kicked in and the the second wave of the pandemic came about, that that went away. So so basically, since November, pretty much, we, it's been entirely online. Um, and it seems that the students are are responding positively to that. Like there haven't been, I think there there were some fears at the beginning that. Students might not engage so well in an online environment, and I know. I mean, there's been that discussion broadly in education. I think since the pandemic, but at least in our program, I think the the connection and the response has been quite good. They don't. It's not only instruction and teaching and assessment, but there are also other things we do extracurricular events with them. Even even during the pandemic, um, we we have a mentorship program. Um, we we take them on 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 visits that are now virtual to different museums to meet experts within museums and, and other cultural entities um, who have an expertise to pass on. So it's it's an, it's an interesting program, it's unique. There isn't anything like it out there because it's a law masters, it's one year, and it provides that balance between the academic rigor of, of Queen Mary University and their academics and then the more practical approach that we take at the Institute of Art and Law.
1: I had seen online a, uh, a taste of a class with you that gave a uh, history of restitution, so if anyone's interested, they can certainly go and see that. It's a, it's a riveting hour plus of the, everything from the Romans uh, to the victor go the spoils, up to Washington conference <laughs> and beyond. So that would be a good way for anyone interested to
0: uh, kind of have an idea of the classes, would you say? Yes, everything you ever wanted to know about restitution, but were afraid to ask in <laughs> one hour. So thanks, thanks <laughs> for the plugs.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, w- I loved it. So uh, what would you say uh, for anyone interested in the LLM? What kind of? Uh, aspects of professional life would they see um, that this might help for
0: yeah so we've had um, it's been interesting because the students coming in have have been from a fairly diverse background as well um, so you you've had people who were practicing lawyers who wanted to do a master's so they came in and people like that tended to then go back to what they'd been doing before but with the added um, advantage of having this expertise in art law, so expanding their art law practice if they're in private practice. But the other the other stream would be students who came out of an undergraduate degree or maybe had just qualified, so maybe a little bit younger. Um, they've gone on to a variety of things. We've had um, someone go on to a PhD in art, PhD in, in the copyright area. Um, we've had someone actually was hired in by the Institute of Art and Law. Like We hired someone as a as a researcher out of out of that program and and they've now gone on to work at a at an international law firm. Um, there's there have been some that have worked in government departments um, and and others in auction houses. So so those are those are some examples of what some of the earlier students in the first couple of years of the program have gone on to.
1: Now I think we've kind of broached the subject of of how art and law maybe complement or conflict with each other. And I was curious if you had any thoughts on that. The The first thing that popped to mind for me was the deaccession rules that we we touched earlier, that that might be an aspect of where the law is rather combative with art. What do you think?
0: Well, I think deaccession is, is a very good example because it's, it's a question of how a legal framework governs the treatment of works of art and the restrictions that can be imposed through that legal framework on the ability for a museum, a board of a museum to dispose of works of art for sale or for any other purpose. And there's 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 always a conflict there because there are going to be ethical considerations, there are going to be legal considerations, but sometimes the law has the last word. Like in the UK, uh, Emily mentioned this earlier, some of the national institutions will have fairly strict bars on deaccessioning. Um, I, I, the best example is probably the National Gallery in London and Trafalgar Square. It, it cannot deaccession. It could not sell works. It could not give works away. The only exception is if it transferred um, works from their collection to another national collection in the UK. That's it. So any questions of restitution, repatriation or deaccession if maybe they have too many works and they don't have enough room in storage, or potentially they want to sell things for money, they would be prevented by statute from doing that. So the law is very strict. So basically, if they wanted to return anything or dispose of anything, they'd have to get a new piece of legislation passed through the British Parliament. And that's a, that's a tall order. Now that exists for, um, as Emily mentioned, Nazi looted art. So they, they could dispose of a work of Nazi loot, a work that had been taken or, or lost during the Nazi period. Um, but it's, it's a, fairly, a fairly narrow exception. So any other type of work, the National Gallery in London, would need specific legislation to be passed. So that's, that's an interesting area where the, where the law obviously uh, puts the brakes on the dealing with, in, in cultural objects. But there are many others. I mean, you can think of import and export restrictions. You can think of the way in which copyright affects the ownership of the intangible rights in a work of art. Uh, You can think of the way in which the tax regime affects ownership of art and donations of art. So there are a huge number of ways in which the law can affect the dealing in art, but also the creation of art from its inception by by the creator, by the artist, all the way to the disposal in terms of deaccessioning of a work.
1: Not to raise a topic that perhaps has received an overwhelming amount of attention recently, but for the article, Emily, that you wrote on NFTs, that comes to mind.
2: I knew you were going to bring that one up.
1: (laughs) It seemed appropriate, right? <laughs> so you raised some very interesting questions at the end of that uh, about, well, I'll let you kind of go through them if you like. It's just that I found them very thought provoking.
2: Yeah, it is a really fascinating area. And I have to confess to having become somewhat obsessed with reading about it over the last few weeks and months, um, because everyone's talking about it. Um and I in fact I, I went to a, a seminar just yesterday evening um put on by some barristers in London who have been involved um in um some cases um relating to one of the auction houses, um, who've who started. I mean, most of the major auction houses have now got on board with this whole NFT craze. Um, but you're right that you know there are many many questions that um, this new sort of way of selling art really um, is raising so just for those who who haven't come across the acronym um, NFT stands for non-fungible token and uh, it is a form of crypto asset so I think we've all probably heard of cryptocurrencies like bitcoin and ethereum ether that have been around for some time now Um, a non-fungible token is effectively um, a piece of computer code really which points to or relates to a particular asset and most commonly that would be a piece of digital art but it could be physical art a physical object um, and the the key thing about a, an NFT is that non-fungibility, um, which which really means its uniqueness, its singularity. There is only one of any particular NFT. Um, so. NFTs are generally bought and sold on the blockchain, which is this huge sort of it's often described as a distributed ledger. Um, and it's effectively a sort of um system whereby um you can transact. Um, in a manner which is sort of recorded on a whole number of computer servers which are not controlled by any one entity they're sort of controlled by the whole community that is involved in that blockchain um I should say now that I'm not a particularly techy person, so I'm describing this in really in layman's terms because they're the only terms that I understand um so so what has happened then is that digital artists have got on board with this whole um, NFT structure and have started selling works through NFTs. But I think this is, in some ways, it's it's, uh, caused quite a bit of confusion about exactly what is being bought and sold. Um, So if you sell an an NFT um, piece of digital art, there's this sort of perception that that means selling the copyright in that. And in fact, copyright and an asset as such, whether it be a digital asset or a physical asset, the copyright in it and the asset itself are two different things and very probably can be owned by two different people. So if I buy a piece of digital art via an NFT I don't then automatically become the owner of the copyright in that. There was a really fascinating case recently that um, some of the listeners may have read about involving a Basquiat um, painting, um, which was put up for sale. I think it was by Sotheby's. Um, In any event, it was put up for sale, um, and the seller um, made this statement about the fact that um, the sale of this work would also involve transfer of the copyright. And then lo and behold, the Basquiat estate came forward and said, actually, that's completely not the case. We own the copyright in that, and there is no transfer of copyright whatsoever. So that's just a good example about some of the confusion, I think, that that um, that is sort of spinning around this whole world at the moment. All of that said, I do think that... Um, there are certain advantages, um, particularly for digital artists, of this whole blockchain structure. And one element which has been talked about quite a bit is that it gives um, a certain amount of, of certainty and clarity and transparency over the provenance of works. And provenance you know, has been a perennial problem in the art world. How do we um, verify that a work came from a particular artist and how do we trace the various series of transactions um, up until, you know, the the present day. And the the big sort of um, selling point of the blockchain is that all of that information is transparent and is stored on the blockchain. Anybody can see it. So once that information is in there, then it it does give um, a certain degree of, um, of clarity over provenance. Now, I don't think that it's a complete panacea because if we're talking about works which already exist, you know, historical works, then of course um that blockchain record is only as good as the, the integrity of the data that goes in in the first place. So um without going into too much detail, you know, there are certainly advantages, but it's not going to solve all of the, the world's problems. Problems, But it is, it is one useful element. Another useful um, thing is that, Um, So these NFTs are are sold on the blockchain via these things called smart contracts. And you can embed certain um, sort of procedures into a smart contract. And a digital artist could embed into their smart contract um, a resale royalty so that any future sale of that NFT will automatically trigger a resale payment back to that artist of 5% or whatever it might be. So it gives that artist some control over the future sales of their, their work, which can be much more difficult in in the real world, um, as we might say. So yeah, I could, I could talk about this for hours, Steph, but I'll stop there. But it is a fascinating area.
1: Yes, and that smart contract feature with the resale royalty rights uh, stood out to me as a huge benefit uh, Going forward, and so the the idea why was it initially? I think I'd asked you guys about uh, the impact of art law on society and culture, and then I was thinking it really is like this is an example of yet another example of society and culture and the needs of our time impacting art law. Yeah,
2: absolutely, absolutely, Steph. And I think Ashley, um, the the, the sort of conditions of the pandemic in the last, you know, twelve months or so, have kind of accelerated some of these conversations around because we, you know, people have had to change their practices, um, and you know, museums have had to um, kind of really accelerate a lot of their digitization programs, and you know, art dealers have had to, um, you know, shut up their their shops and create digital platforms by which they buy and sell and so lots of the sort of basic structures and the basic law around these activities um is not new but the way it is applied has has really um forced people to sort of pay attention to the way they are doing things and, and whether they are covered you know a, I think they might well have had to look at their standard terms of, of, of sale and, and check whether they're actually appropriate for the online world. And museums may have had to think again about, you know, copyright issues when they go about creating digital exhibitions. So it's been a really interesting time in, in so many ways.
0: Yeah, and I think, I think in terms of how art law has affected society, um, one, a good example is a microcosm is what we talked about earlier, which is restitution. And whichever area of restitution one looks at, whether it's in relation to colonial era items or Nazi looted art or potentially items that were taken in armed conflict or stolen many years ago, there's always that tension between the ethical side, which might say, well, this item should be returned because there are strong moral reasons for returning it, and then the legal side, which is caught up in that in that that knot of, of different problems relating to disposal of items, relating to limitation periods, relating to potentially good faith purchases, and other legal rules that tend to protect the possessor, or you could say tend to preserve the status quo. And so you sometimes you have a, a crusade or a call for something to be returned, because it seems like the ethically sensible thing to do. But the law comes in and says, well, no, there, there are certain protections, the way things are now for the possessor and for the status quo. And that's, I think, one way in which you can feel the tension there in terms of those issues that do make it into the broader society because a journalist writing an article or, or somebody who's a campaigner or an activist or just a member of the public might think, well, ethically, why don't you just do it? Or ethically, why doesn't that just happen? But actually, it's much more complicated because art um, and cultural objects are caught up in that web of legal and regulatory control. And so it's not that easy to just, quote unquote, do the right thing. It's actually quite a a long and cumbersome process because you might have to undo part of that web. So I think when these issues, we're always interested when they do come to the fore and there are, as Emily said, numerous articles being written about different issues, whether it's restitution or NFTs or copyright. But they, they tend to sometimes simplify the matter and, and not make it clear how complex the, the legal controls might be and how long the process might be to remove something from its current context and, and take it back to its place of origin. So I think that's one of the ways in which we, we see how art law has affected culture because people tend to miss, miss uh, or uh, underestimate the, the complexities uh, which keep an item in its current place.
1: Would you say for what the Institute does to facilitate these kinds of conversations and give perspective on these issues that that is perhaps how the Institute uh, speaks to justice?
0: But yeah, in a way, it, it comes on from what I, what I said, which is that the general population might not fully understand all of these issues. I mean, we might because we spent years looking at these. But usually people, even practitioners, lawyers, or people working in museums or at auction houses or generally in the art trade, they might not necessarily know all of those complexities. And I think by informing the public, by informing those people, whether it's through our courses or through our publications, through the blog, um, it helps to... To, you know, to, to open up the, the truth of the matter so that you realize that things are a little bit more complicated than maybe an article might have made it look. Or maybe if you feel strongly morally about a particular cause, that actually there are certain complexities that you need to work through before you can reach a reasonable solution to that, to that problem. And so I think what we've tried to do, and I think this goes back to when the institute was founded 20, over 25 years ago, is to establish clear guidance on what the laws and regulations are in relation to art whether it's in the creation of art the dealing in art or the disposal of art and the more people know about it the more they're informed and the better informed they are i think the more capable they are of reaching those reasonable resolutions that, that i talked about
1: There will be links in the show notes to learn more about the Institute of Art and Law and its LLM program. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review, and you can email comments to stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Draudi bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. your plans for the second Saturday of this month perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art culture and social issues hi everyone it's stephanie and every second saturday at 1 pm eastern time i host the second saturday art and justice gathering an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking if interested please email me at stephanie at warfare of art and law dot com